Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fall, I'm the editor of the Toolkit. And my guest today is the writer-director of the new film Knives Out, Ryan Johnson. And today's show is being brought to you by MTV Documentary Films, presenting one of the year's most acclaimed documentary short subjects, St. Louis Superman, uh, which is a film, I, you just keep hearing so many people talk about this film. I, I can't think of a documentary short that's, uh, that's <laughs> been talked about quite as much as this one. Uh, Bruce Franks Jr., a 34-year-old Ferguson activist and battle rapper is elected to the overwhelmingly white Republican Missouri House of Representatives. As he overcomes personal trauma and political obstacles, Franks Jr. fights to protect his children and the future of his community, St. Louis Superman, for your consideration. And now my conversation with Ryan Johnson. Hitchcock had this um, thing about the problem with the whodunit, uh, and there's an, there's a it seems as like maybe that was even a starting point for you wanting to, you want to do you're drawn to doing these type of this type of movie yeah. how to solve the like what's inherently uninteresting about just the doling out of information right right yeah i mean hitchcock's whole thing of surprise versus suspense it's kind of perfectly illustrated in the hitchcock movie versus the the who done it and um Hitchcock famously hated whodunits. He hated them because they, you know, and, and, and because they're all like one big build up to one big surprise. And I love whodunits, and I still absolutely feel what he's talking about. Like I do, as much as I love Agatha Christie books, there does, you know, in a lot of them, there does hit a point about three quarters of the way through where you start to flag and you start you start to feel like. Uh, yeah okay we just keep we're gathering clues I'm never gonna guess this and let's just get to the point where the detectives you know gives me the solution so um so yeah I mean I mean and so with this we do you know you, you can recognize we do the Colombo thing we 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 basically um with a couple of very crucial differences um and you know I'm, sure, I'm assuming everyone listening to this podcast knows the Colombo thing of the Colombo starts with the scene where the killer does the murder and you see who it is and then it that makes it suspense not surprise that mean, means there is no surprise you know it and you're waiting to see how Colombo is going to catch him um and so we kind of do that in this movie um i mean the whole idea and this is the idea I had 10 years ago was start as hey, could, could I do something that starts as a whodunit turns into a Hitchcock thriller then turns back into a whodunit at the end so yeah we do the thing where we uh, you know where we show basically the audience or we we're lying to them essentially but we show them so that they think they've just seen who did it Um, one of the interesting things for me was besides the idea of kind of creating a creating plot-wise a version of that that I could undo at the end, one of the really interesting things to me was, okay, what if you did the Columbo thing, but the audience was genuinely on the side of the quote-unquote killer? Um, Not just in a Hitchcock, like, "Ah, I feel kind of creepy, I'm kind of rooting for Norman Bates to get away with this and oh no the car is not going to sink going, in the swamp you start going and, oh, a no. little bit there you well we get to, we'll get to that in a sec we'll get that we'll get to that in a sec but we started out I mean it's a crucial that we begin with you being 100% now you, you feeling absolutely 100% without any conflict that the right thing to happen is for her to get away with this um and so uh and that that does something really if you're a genre wonk like me that does something really interesting and that if you're rooting for her to actually get away with it the fact that we know 
you know, how these things work. And we know that Blanc, the detective, always figures it out at the end and catches the the killer. The very mechanics of the genre we're all familiar with become the antagonist of the movie, even if the detective himself is a sympathetic character. Um, that's why I have Blanc say that line to her. You know, this machine arrives at the truth. That's what it does. Uh, and uh, that seemed really, really interesting to me. And then, of course, we do kind of push it into Norman Bates' territory. I mean, it's, it's more that we're, you know, what I wanted is to eventually get to a place where we become nervous in terms of how far Marta's willing to go, how to cover her tracks, and is she willing to, is she going to hit a place where she's willing to do things just as bad as what the family is doing in order to, win at the end of the day um and that tension also seems you know interesting but you don't go full creep with hitchcock and i think one of the ways that you did it was that um that part with how far is she gonna go yeah it becomes like this almost uh spoof on the car chase yeah like what is lakeith stanfield's line there the, the dumbest car chase of all time <laughs> and then, uh, and it's kind of like there's kind of little baby driver references and stuff yeah. but there's this thing where it's like here's my action scene where it's like how far but it's like yeah it's just this kind of a little bit of a wink of like this is still my you know this is yeah. like we're still gonna yeah. have a little fun here yeah, absolutely we're not, we try and keep the tone, tone yeah. light and we try and hopefully the audience is never worried she's going to actually murder somebody to get I feel like that yeah <laughs> hopefully we're kind of we have a solid hand on the wheel so the audience feels like okay this isn't going to go off the rails like that and I think it, clearly you think about this film and I don't know if you think the, the word sequences or chapters but it, it whatever however one splits things up but there's there's an element there I mean that that clearly that the breakthrough has to be with the screenwriting is mm. is Marta thinks she kills him and we experience yeah. that and we have that emotional experience Yeah, and we see how devastated she is and Christopher Plummer so wonderful in that scene. Great. He's yeah. so wonderful. Yeah. Just that acceptance of realizing he's going to die and that he does that. Yeah. And that sets off. I mean, I imagine first off that has to be like from the logistics of the screenplay, like, figuring out how to get there yeah. in a believable way right. is, is gotta be like, the thing that you probably were hitting your head against well, the wall for a while. Well, just plot mechanics, yeah. How does that work? And um, I did a lot of variations of the switching up the medicine things that were <laughs> that were that were uh, comp to yeah, way more complicated than what's in the movie. Yeah, what's in the movie? Yeah, figuring out how that would work. But you're right. I mean, um, but that's 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 plot. I mean, the way that I write is I. Um, you know, I write very structurally. I, I I start just kind of mapping it out, and I do think in, in I've trained myself to think in sequences, and so I, I draw a timeline. I write in the smaller moleskin notebooks, and I, I draw a timeline on one page, just an arc a line, and then I split it out with little you know uh, little vertical lines, and I kind of create my sequence of sequences. Um, and and split into acts basically. So I do like the structure thing, but those sequence. I'm not at that point even thinking in terms of of plot. Um, I'm thinking in terms of story, I guess. Which like it's a weird. I don't know how to exactly describe it. It's basically I'm thinking in terms of the audience's experience and what's drawing an audience through 
sequence by sequence. For, for each sequence, what are they worried about? What are they leaning forward about? What's the big change that happens at the end of the sequence? And how does that change catapult us into the next thing? That how do we resolve about? the thing that's in the sequence and then set up? Exactly. Or change it or, yeah. you know, give it enough right. of a change so that we feel that refresher of, you know, uh, so, because I think you you do get tired if you're just following, worried about the same thing. <laughs> something, some big thing changes to throw some cold water on your face, and then you're off running again. You know, so um, so it it really is thinking as basic and fundamental as that. And then plot comes next, and yeah, the big plot thing to figure out where just it's stuff like the mechanics of of the morphine switch up. Like, how do you play that in such a way where? Uh, it fits the requirements, which is she has to believe she did it, we have to believe she did it, and I also need to be able to kind of undo it at the end in a way that makes sense. And I love the sequence that follows where it is this it is this thing where, you know, she's been deputized as as Watson right. and and Yet she's got to cover it. We experience that whole thing by her covering up her tracks and experience, you know, the, yeah. the, the trellis or the um, the foot tracks or the the, the videotape, and we're yeah. we're in her shoes. Oh no, this videotape is going to reveal her. Or the yeah. and how she's getting away with it, and that's it, that seems to be so key in terms of like how to get past the who done it and suddenly experience it through our protagonist. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what we set up that tension, and that's almost like. Um, I don't know. For me, it's almost like I, I I did that sequence next for a few reasons. First of all, almost to like test the waters. Like, okay, did this machine I just built work? Because if it did, we should be leaning forward in the sequence and hoping she gets away with each of these things. It's kind of like putting the marble in the mousetrap and holding your breath. Okay, if the, if if we're still engaged in this sequence, it means your sympathy is with Marta and this whole thing is this engine is is turned over. Um, also, though, I feel like it was really important to put a because Harlan is the one who presents Marta with this plan. It was really important to ha- immediately have a sequence where Marta was active and where Marta was fighting, and outside of what Harlan has told her to do, is being um, in you know is through ingenuity and through quick thinking is getting away with a few different things in a row. Um, also, just as for you know, just as a character to get us on her side, I felt like that was really important, um, and to make her a full character. And of course, then we kind of I, I try and push that further in the next sequence to see and have it start to tip over, like we talked before, like the Norman Bates thing of like, uh oh, she's really being proactive. How proactive is she willing to be here? Is she going to do something that I, doesn't feel right in order to? To, to keep this fortune. But that's also the thing is, is how far do you pressure that character? Because the end, she makes the, she does the, the yeah, right. Yeah, but you got to push her all yeah, the yeah, way to the end. You have to, I mean, it, it, she I, has to, she has to be give, be willing to give herself up to do the right thing, which is, it, which is, yeah. which is, it's in sharp contrast to. I basically had, gave her the Walter White choice of like, you know, watching Jesse's girlfriend, watching Jane like dying and he can, do the right thing and save her, or he can just be passive and do nothing. And, uh, and, and that felt like interesting also in that moment with Marta where she's watching Fran die and she, she's a nurse and she has a medical bag and she can save her. But Fran has just told her, I know it was you, I'm going to make you pay. Mm-hmm. And, um, the idea that she, that Marta accepted this mission through passivity, through kind of like letting, Harlan tell her this plan and she going along with it and that at this point 
the easiest thing in the world would be to choose passivity and to let this let let her die and walk away and it would be perfectly fine um and that she chooses to be active and do the right thing and turn herself in you know that in order to save this person's life that that felt like a good bookend marta is someone that we don't really have much as we're not really there's a sense that she's going to be a protagonist but she's we're not grounded in her and we have this beginning sequence and there's a couple things here one the way obviously a whodunit has is about a flow of information and how that information is going to how you doled out that information is going to be how we introduce characters how we feel about them Mm -hmm. where we are in relationship to them but there's also just this something so devious and so delicious and so wonderful about that library scene and the flashbacks and going back and how that's gonna and it's brilliant but i have to imagine that that's something that only comes from like 90,000 rewrites and yeah. getting it and getting it perfect. Yeah, that was that was the sequence I rewrote. <laughs> it kept at every time I would I would show the script to different people, different friends that I trust. I would always get the the universe of the same note was just oh, it's it's fun. That first 30 pages is really rough though. You really have to work through that and then it takes <laughs> off and I I never didn't get that note even the final shooting draft it felt that way and at a certain point I kind of I don't know Esther I could kind of like imagine how it would be on the screen and I kind of realized it, it's some um, because of the nature of it because of all the intercutting because of the fact that we're dipping back into different perspectives because of the fact that we're meeting a huge variety of characters which is honestly really tough on the page to just keep straight who is who like that, that's how beginnings are absolutely you know? man yeah when you're just looking at character names and on 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 a typed page as opposed to seeing you can tell tony collette and michael shannon and jamie lee curtis apart that doesn't t- it takes a lot less brain power you know so um so at a certain point, I was like, I think this is going to be work better on the screen than it does on the page. And you never want to give yourself that escape hatch. <laughs> and we did. We kept, I kept work, we, working on it and kept trying to get it as mm-hmm. tight as, and as fun as it can be. But um, at a certain point, we just had to, had to film it, you know. And I think part of this, right, is, and I, we, full disclosure, Ryan and I have had this conversation and my Zoom didn't work. So some some cases, Ryan's been sweet enough to do this. <laughs> I, 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 feel like, I feel like I, I, I think we're be, better. I, 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 I got to take two. I got to yeah. take two. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the, um, I think there probably is a, a low budget version of this without stars that can yeah. be done. But I I don't know. There's something about this and I think it kind of ties into what you're doing is, is that is is to have recognizable faces, to have these character actors, have these stars chewing into this. Because yeah. in the back of that, it's like, who, who, who's this guy in back? It's Daniel <laughs> Craig, and it's Jamie Lee Curtis, and I think there's just something about um, getting through that. That's really about these these fun roles and, yeah. and, and them and them kind of chewing into them as these recognizable faces. Yeah, it was very much manufactured with that in mind. I mean, I was thinking about the movies I grew up watching, like Death on the Nile, Evil Under the Sun with Peter Ustinov, or you know, the Finney Murder on the Orient Express, like these movies that were all star events, all star extravaganzas. And um I remember watching them with my family and feeling like these were events, you know, and feeling like this is the most fun a movie can possibly be. And uh and you watch those movies and it's like every single person is up there. It's like, you know, it's it's Ingrid Bergman, it's, you know, David Niven, it's James Mason, it's, you know... And they have fun in these movies. They have so much fun, that's the thing. And those movies walk, that's the other thing we were aiming for with this, is those movies walk a tonal line where 
there's a cheeky sense of self-aware fun, and yet they never tip over into parody. Um, Evil Under the Sun gets close, but <laughs> but they keep they still keep it on the side of it, this is a no this is a, this is a mystery with stakes, and so as big as all the characters are, they still land as characters. Um, and, and you wink at us, you wink the movie sure. winks at us, and the movie yeah, and the yeah. movie will let us you know you're in on it and so it doesn't be even when it maybe goes in that direction it's kind of i mean part of the fun is the recognition of the genre and like i described before like i laboriously probably described before it was actually an essential part of this that the audience feels like we're saying yep this is a this is a whodunit murder mystery with all the rules that apply to that so that when suddenly we care about marta and she's the one who done it and the gentleman's sleuth is on her trail that dread of oh that means we all know where this is going kind of kicks in so it was it was beyond just the fun of winking it was it was actually important to the story what about just kind of getting i imagine this is something that a daniel craig a chris Evans, that oh yeah i want this sounds like fun i'll do this mm-hmm. but i assume also there's an element where you have them for windows right yeah, is, it, it, oh, yeah. i'm wondering was that was there a little bit, whereas I think a, a, a lot of times you get a group together and you, mm-hmm. you kind of plow through it, especially something where it's an ensemble like this. Was this something where it was like jigsaw puzzles of like, I've got this person for this many days, I have this person for this many days, and therefore that also factors into the geometry of shots and like plugging things in? Or yeah. or is Daniel Craig in the back of that library yeah. in each with Michael Shannon with with Lee, Jamie Lee Curtis or or are you yeah, it, are you having to kind of like shoot his stuff no there was never any of that there wasn't. That, no 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 if people were if people were in a scene and we were shooting that scene the people were there okay. so um and also because we were moving really quick you know? is that what we're, that was the real key we're moving really fast yeah. yeah we shot it in 35 days which I know having made a movie in 19 days I know that's 35 is not super fast but that's relatively fast for a medium budget movie with with this kind of cast so um no we were moving really quick and every and you know yeah it was something of a jigsaw publicist but it wasn't like what you were describing it was more just like getting everybody there at the same time and figuring out when everyone could be there at the same time um so uh so yeah 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 it was it was it was like that but not that bad (laughs) the other thing is in in the part and i I said this to you before but like i i think in rewatching it last night i started to see the pieces and i started to see how you construct this Mm. the one piece that i could not see it works but it would think that i would be nervous about if i was part of your team and i'm like how is ryan going to come out of this as you're going this way with marta how far is marta going to go but you want that end. Yeah. You want that drawing room end. You want that's clearly the, the 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 and you have so much fun with it and you sink your teeth into it. But that turn back into right. the who done it. That was a really tricky thing and you pulled it off, but I have to imagine that's like also like a certain like engineering of how I'm going to get there, right? Right. Yeah, I mean and it's sort of a Yeah, I mean there's 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 a, a, a that transition from it feels like kind of like the story of Marta is winding down. She's about to confess to the family. And then we hit the gas and in a big way, Blanc bursts forward and gives this big speech. And then I tried with the camera to be, we're rushing into the next room and rushing back and forth. And there's a urgency of, and suddenly the language is becoming the language of wait, we're just solving the mystery here. And in some ways we, we kind of just, don't even hit the clutch we kind of just jam into another gear really quickly you know we kind of just do it there's um 
Yeah, there's a, I forget what the Led Zeppelin song is. I think it's Black Dog, where there's like a, a time... Sig- I'm going to get all this wrong for the musical people who are listening. I apologize. But I heard uh, Jimmy Page talking about at some point there was like a time signature change. Or maybe as Bonham was talking about. And basically, in the middle of a musical phrase, there's a time signature. And he was like, how do I make this transition? And he finally realized... I don't make a transition. I just change instantly what I'm playing, and it works. That becomes the, the lack of transition becomes the transition. Um, I mean, the other, the I think the, the the probably more than how we transition into it. The reason it feels like it works is because of recognition. Is because everything the Blanc lays out in that last sequence is something the audience recognizes from previous in the movie you know and i i think that's probably why it doesn't feel like oh wait what are we doing here hold on are we going into a whole nother thing here it feel the combination of oh this is what murder mysteries do and this is what we told we were get we were getting at the beginning with every single point he hits it feels like oh wait yeah that was planted oh yeah no all the clues were there all along then hopefully the feeling is that this whodunit has been hiding underneath this thriller the entire time. And the thriller itself was just a bit of misdirection. You know? And they've also gotten so horrible. And that she's gotten so we're yeah. so attached to her that there's also, we can't, this got to <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I feel like I got this really interesting insight to you a few weeks ago. Um, you know, I was just on the Criterion channel and I, uh, you, picked, you picked some films and it was... I just remember F is for fake, the Shane Carruth, the upstream yeah. color. And I think eight and a half too. Right? Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. I was, I just, I started watching the interviews and it was very funny because it's like, you've picked these films and I feel the same way about them where it's like, you watch them and you're like, I don't know how Wells did that. Yeah. I don't, I could watch Shane Carruth forever. Yeah. And I still, you know, Alicia Malone asked you these questions, which you would ask, Oh, how this influenced. And you're like, I, <laughs> no, I, I, no, I just know I've made enough films to be like, holy yeah, shit! Like yeah. I can't, like I'm not even gonna try. That's like, not I, what I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. The next, just ironically, the next day I interviewed your cousin. Yeah, your compo- your wonderful yeah. composer Nathan. Yeah, and he was talking about your collaboration, and and it was this thing where he was talking about the fact that this is a conversation that you guys have been having for a while. Yeah, and that working with you is this wonderful thing where it's about first figuring out the sandbox. Mm-hmm. And then once, you know, and he was talking about the fact that we want these uh, 50s and 60s kind of thematic music, but then what does that mean in terms of a modern? And so you're kind of like drawing. And then once inside that sandbox, it's play. Yeah, completely. And and it's like, what? and I just thought that was very interesting and being aware of the outer frames of like what you can't do. But then when you work. Yeah. And you work and you're apparently a wonderful collaborator, figuring out what that sandbox is. And then in there freedom yeah absolutely man that's why i love genre you know it gives you a it gives you a game board to play on and then even just you know before i even start collaborating even for writing for myself um having the boundaries and having kind of knowing okay we're i love this kind of genre so i'm going to try and do something that gives the audience the pure pleasure of what i love about it having that as like the goal that then gives you yeah, it gives you it gives you a field to play. It gives you a, a chessboard to work on, you know. Um, and similar with uh, because you want you, you want two seeming with a co- collaboration with these things, you want two seemingly uh, opposite things simultaneously. You want people to feel total creative freedom, and you want them working very specifically towards the ends that the story requires. Um, and so, yeah, the the more 
that second part can be clearly defined and focused and defined the more that you can take advantage of the amazing creativity of the people you're working with by letting them play and how they get there. And that's really a key thing for you, I imagine, at this point, is is, is those people that you can have those early conversations with and yeah. they're going on the, par- you know, Nathan with music, I'm your producer, and, Absolutely, and, and, and yeah. Steve, and, Steve yeah, and, and, and go in that direction. Yeah. I also have to imagine that doing a film like this um, that feels... I mean, I know the writing is something that takes a really long time, but something that feels controlled and mm-hmm. that you can do quickly and, and have a lot of energy. I have to imagine that that's also a nice breakup after, I mean, sure, Star Wars was a wonderful experience, but that's mm-hmm. just like an all-encompassing, like, you know, it enormous world. And I have yeah. to imagine this, there's something mentally that's uh, that's nice to do. Yeah, the, there is something to, different about this. I mean, I don't want to mischaracterize it. I feel like it's the, the thing that, um, I don't know, like, like I think that, it's hard to communicate how focused and intimate a process making that Star Wars movie actually was. You know, it's like, because I, I think from the outside, it does just look like a big machine and you would think it's more of a, I don't know, like, is it, does it feel like a different thing directing and something like that? Does it feel like more of a management position than like a boots on the ground? And the answer is, and it, it really doesn't. Like, it's hard to communicate how when you're in the middle of that bubble... I mean, it, it, there is a lot of machinery around you, and you are using it. You know, I always make the analogy to Guillermo's movie Pacific Rim, where they they would get in. There was this massive robot, you know, but the guy gets in the head of the robot, and get, it's a, the homunculus guy gets in the suit, and it follows his every motion perfectly. Um, that's kind of what that production sort of felt like. Yeah, it was a big machine, but it still felt like I was in there just the same way with Nazat. But there is obviously different stuff and it felt good to move fast, I'll say that. That's what I meant. It's more the speed. Yeah. It's 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 the speed and being able to to exercise that. Um, Working within genres is so much fun. I'm curious, and some reviewers have, including our our David Ehrlich, who loved the film, some reviewers, and it's hard to not notice that there is some element here of what's going on in the world. And you do have this in that choice to have that one segment where they're arguing about immigrants and Mm -hmm. you got Don Johnson and you're having a little fun with this, but there is this something there is, I'm wondering how conscious you are of that because I mean, Trump and immigration are such loaded, loaded things, but Mm -hmm. there's this element of, of when we think about money and the money and how it corrupts, that seems to be a little bit at the core of, of this creation and, 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 that's something that always comes out in genres is, is mm-hmm. one, it, how, how does one interact with the world not come through? But it, right. uh, that's also something I imagine you have to be conscious of, of how far you want to go with that. I thought you came up with a perfect balance. I think most of the reviewers think you came up with a perfect balance, but I imagine that's something in the corner of your mind. Like, Oh yeah. How much, how much <laughs> am I going to get in and get into something like that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the thing that made me feel all right about doing it was, I mean, you know, first of all, it, it, uh, that element of the story and what it was essentially about predated, the current unpleasantness, you know, um, that was the fact that it was built around this family and this kind of immigrant nurse who worked inside the family and the way she's inside but outside it. And then basically, I guess the, the story for me was about sort of the fundamental is about using each one of these characters as a different facet to explore, honestly, kind of, you know, in myself more than anything else. Um, both privilege and also, though, a more fundamental thing than that, which is kind of just that basic human thing of when something you 
believe is yours is threatened? What? How do you react to that? And that kind of giving a very clear spotlight as to the moral compass of, of every one of us. Um, it's kind of a similar thing. With, I mean, it's similar to actually Looper in that way. Looper, that was very much on my mind when I was making that movie. So um, so I, I, that's what I hope is that it, it you know, it's exploring in a very fundamental human way as opposed to it doesn't really make a political argument per se, although it obviously has a perspective on all this stuff. But more than that, it's, it's, it's more kind of just digging into each one of these characters um, in terms of why they're doing what they're doing. And then it, it has a good heart at the end. That was another important mm-hmm. thing for me. Is you that Dan and this. You have yeah. the greatest last shot. <laughs> you have the, the, that last sequence. You yeah. just, that was, it's so wonderful. Oh, I didn't want it to end cynically. That was the thing. Uh, yeah. I wanted I wanted you to walk out. That's why I've got, you know, Sweet Virginia is that yeah. last song. I want you to walk out smiling and bobbing your head, you know. Yeah. So, so but yeah, it's uh and then, you know, it also was once I decided to say it in 2019 and say we're not going to make the – so often when you, when you see whodunits, they are period pieces because they're usually Christie adaptations. And they, they're these timeless little jewel boxes. And I, I, making the choice of we are not doing that, we are going to be, you know, as untimeless as possible. <laughs> I don't know how this movie will age next year. I don't care. Let's make it to be seen right now. And so let's just talk about this stuff. I I, mean, I, I look back and filmed from the 50s and I, if you compare the ones that are dramas that are dealing with like the Red Scare and yeah. McCarthyism compared to the Westerns right. or, or the, the sci-fi, I mean, those are the ones in terms of the politics that live on. Yeah, and they were dealing with the same stuff. And, yeah. and there, there's yeah. something, whereas yeah. the drama has become dated. And yeah. so, yeah. and I think there's something about just working that through in genre and just who you are and what your concerns are. It's right. going to come through right. in, a, in a, I think, a, a better way. Mm-hmm. Um, Ryan, this is a wonderful film. And I really, 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 I, I, I'm going to say this on air. I can't thank you enough. You re-recorded the first 12 minutes of this podcast <laughs> while you're on a press swing. Um, it is the 101st episode, and it's the first time that my thing failed in the middle, and you were a prince. <laughs> and you did not have to do that. And so I really, really appreciate I that. I feel like we got better the second time. And I think we were. Maybe that was I, the practice run. Well, that's when I tell Scorsese. We have to do it twice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. Awesome, Chris. Thanks. And today's show is brought to you by MTV Documentary Films, presenting Gay Chorus Deep South, led by conductor Dr. Tim Sealing and joined by the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. Gay Chorus Deep South offers a glimpse of a less polarized America, where the issues that divide us are set aside by the power of music, humanity, and a little drag. Winner of over 25 audience awards across the country, Gay Chorus Deep South, for your consideration.